Hey everyone, you're listening to the MLEPC podcast. Thank you for joining us. The podcast features every previous Sunday's sermon and plenty of other cool content like interviews and mini-series. Please remember to share our content and subscribe to our channel so you can stay up to date with everything that we create. You can find out more about what's happening at the church by visiting our website at mlepc.org or checking us out on our social media. Once again, we thank you for tuning in to the Emily PC podcast, and we hope to see you at an event soon. Good morning, friends. <laughs> if you're like me, you really enjoy the days that we, where we're, we, we have a, a baptism here in the church. Those are always a lot of fun. And uh, uh, there's something about baptisms there. They're, of course, always a, a public event. Uh, it's, and in fact, if you if you want to be baptized but don't want to be baptized, in, if you're not willing to say in public that I have decided to follow Jesus, you're not ready for baptism, right? Uh, baptisms can often be quite memorable. We, we have a, a particular baptism in my family that, that everybody remembers, and we kind of recite it from time to time. My, uh, my younger brother was to be baptized, and uh, in, in our church, as I, the church I grew up in, was also uh, a, a, a a church that practiced infant baptism. And so uh, uh, my, uh, my, my father and my mother were standing in front of the church and the pastor was facing them with his back to the congregation and he was asking the, the questions that you ask. And uh, my father was holding my, my brother. And he got to the question, and what do you name this child? And, and probably because you know, it can happen to anybody in a public setting. When, you know, if, you, if you've ever done public speaking, your greatest fear is your mind will go blank. My father... Every name that my mother, my, my, my mother and father the week before had, had debated back and forth, this name, that name, whatever, he could not remember which name they had decided on. In fact, he could not even think of one name. His mind absolutely went blank. My mother said, what's going on? She's nudging him like this. He had nothing. The only name that came to his mind was in his neighborhood of Bradford, Pennsylvania, where, where he grew up. They had a little, like, a little nickname, and he would say, hey, hey, come here, shotgun. The only name he could think of was shotgun. <laughs> My brother was almost baptized Shotgun Jamison. So at family meals nowadays, when I want to get under my skin, uh, my brother's skin, which is all the time, I'll say, hey, would you please pass the butter shotgun? <laughs> it goes over great. We have this little brother-to-brother dynamic in my family. Jesus' baptism was, was very public. It was a very big deal. When I say very public, I mean there were probably thousands of people there. John the Baptist was doing his baptizing thing, and it was a big, big deal. Uh, John went out into the wilderness where there were no people, but people from the population centers had heard about him, and they were drawn to see him in the wilderness, to see this guy who wore rags and ate locusts and honey. Locusts? Yeah, I don't know what what that's, you know. I'm, I'm hoping that that means that he ate leaves from locust trees, but I'm not sure that's what it means. We're not talking fine cuisine here, okay? So they come out to see this guy who's just a little odd, but, but he's, preaching a, he's preaching about repentance. He's preaching that we are not going in the right direction. We need to turn and we need to make a new start. We need to push the reset button. And his message was, was catching on because people recognized, yeah, he's talking about me. I need this too. I need a new start. I've been going in the wrong direction. I've been doing, and I, kn- I know better, but I'm still... I'm still doing things that I know are not pleasing to God, and I want a new start. And they came to the Jordan River where, where John was, and those who were repenting, uh, John would, would baptize them. And then Jesus shows up. Now let me stop there for a minute. I, I want to talk a little bit about baptism. 
uh, baptism was not widely was not widely practiced. It was not John didn't invent baptism, but it was not a brand new thing with him. It was uh, it was practiced in Judaism. If Gentiles decided to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, they were to be baptized. Uh, for instance, uh, Ruth. She was a Moabite woman who decided to follow the God of Israel, and it would have been appropriate for her to be baptized. Now, the, the symbolism of baptism is that, uh, you know, Paul gives us the image of when you, when you are submerged under the water. Remember, we're talking about not sprinkling, but immersion. You go down in the water, it's like going into a grave. The old you dies and when you emerge, it's like a resurrection. You have new life, and you've been cleansed by the water you've been bathed in. This is the symbolism of baptism. So John is practicing a, a, a baptism of repentance, that I want the, the old life, I want to go away. I want to bury that, and I want to receive the new life that God will give me. Uh, let's, let's pick up and, and read the scene here from, from Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. If you're wondering, if John, if you're wondering about why John baptized Jesus. Why would Jesus come to be baptized by John? You're not alone. John was confused by it too. He says, I, this, I'm doing a baptism of repentance. You're the only one, only man who has ever walked the face of the earth and not been a sinner. You have nothing to repent of. Why should I baptize you? You, you should baptize me. And Jesus replied, nevertheless, so that all righteousness may be fulfilled, let's do this. Baptize me. And so John consented to do that. But think about, think about the dynamic here. This, we're, we're, Jesus' baptism, what he's, what he's asking for is not a baptism of repentance, but a baptism of identification. That is, Jesus was now launching his three-year earthly ministry. He was right at the outset. He was starting off, and he wanted to start off understanding the nature of his calling. 
His calling was to connect man and God, to remove the barrier that separated us from God. And his, his means of doing that was to identify with sinners. He was to undergo, he was to be baptized because sinners need to be baptized. He was going to undergo this baptism, which was for repentance, but not because he needed to repent, but because he was doing it on our behalf. We need to repent. We need to be baptized. We need this baptism of repentance. He was undertaking it for us. C.S. Lewis says, the Son of God became a man so that men can become sons of God. He was switching places with us. He was, he was taking from us our sinful nature. And he was repenting on our behalf so that he could confer on us his righteousness. We were switching roles. We were, we were trading places. So this baptism was to be a new beginning, a new life of righteousness. For, for Jesus was launching his ministry now. It was a, a ministry of identification with those who were lost and far away from God, separated by our sin from him. So this is how Jesus begins his ministry, with this baptism. And uh, he's off to a great start. It's a high point. Kind of sealing that high point, he hears, get this, I, I find this very moving. He hears, he, we're told in, in Matthew that the heavens opened up and that Jesus saw something like, like a dove come and light on him, land on him, and he hears a voice saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Friends, if you go away and remember nothing else from our time together this morning, I want it to be this. Remember this. And this question, what does God say when he looks at you? If you are in Christ, I know exactly what he says when he looks at you. He says, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. This is my daughter, my son, whom I love. With him, with her, I am well pleased. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? Do you feel unworthy for that? Do you understand, why does, why does he say that? Why would he say that about you? Doesn't he know what you were thinking last night? Doesn't he know those cross words that you exchanged with a friend this week? He knows those. He sees Jesus in you nevertheless. Why? Because he needs glasses? He's not seeing very well? He sees Jesus in you because Jesus is there. Jesus is in you. If you are in Christ, he is in you. Paul said, you know, if we are in Christ, Christ is in us. He sees Jesus in you. He loves you because of the presence of Jesus in your life. You're, you're, when you came to Christ, your spiritual DNA was transformed. You went from your essential nature of being a sinner to your essential nature of being Christ-like. That changed to like that, the moment you gave your life to Jesus. He sees that in you. He says, you are, you're his son, his daughter. He loves you. I hope today you go home and you remind yourself of that a couple times. I have to remind myself of that pretty often. I think it would change our lives if we really believed about ourselves what God sees in us by the grace of Jesus Christ. I think we don't really believe God loves us the way he loved his son. But that's the plain truth of scripture. That's what God's, God's spirit is telling us in the words of scripture. So Jesus is off to a great start. 
And of course, as often happens, do you ever find when you're on a high, when you're on a roll, what's the next thing that happens? Wouldn't it be nice if life was like you get on an escalator and you just steadily go up and up and up, you know? But it's not like that. I asked a small group of men one time, I gave them a piece of paper and a pen, and I said, why don't you draw a graph of what your life is like from the time that you came to Christ? And all but one of them laughed at me because they thought, what a ridiculous assignment. It's, it's certainly not like this. One guy decided, I'm going to try and, and, and draw a graph of what my life has been like. And he drew like this and down and up and down. And, and, and then he started like a circle like this. Like, you, you can't. That's the reality, friends. Because wouldn't it be nice once you get on track, if you just stay on track, that's hard to do, Right? Satan is trying to come to Jesus now and get him off track. Jesus is launching his ministry, and he wants to derail Jesus. Now, Jesus, immediately after the baptism, we know he goes to the Mount of Temptations. Uh, let's see if I have a picture of uh, the Mount of Temptations. I took this a couple years ago. Oh, anyway, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a desolate place, very, very pri- and uh, hardly anything can even grow there. And you almost never see a human being on the Mount of Temptations. And uh, so Jesus is alone, which is the idea. He's there just to be him and God, okay? And he's trying to lay, lay the foundation for his three years of ministry. And this is when Satan shows up. And he wants to derail Jesus. This is what he, oh, you know what I mean by derail? Have you, have you followed the news of that, that train that derailed in East Palestine a year ago, February of last year? Here's the deal. This train comes along the track. By the way, there were thousands of trains over the years who have gone through little East Palestine. Uh, This one train derailed. It was 1.76 miles long. That's how many cars. It had 141, no, it had, what, 150 cars in it. 141 of them were loaded, nine were empty. 20 of those cars were carrying uh, toxic chemicals specifically butyl acrylate and vinyl chloride. I don't know what those are, but those are pretty deadly stuff. Uh, the, the train was derailed. One of the tanks burst open and caught fire and burned for two days. Black smoke hung in the air for a long time. And uh, Governor Shapiro, remember, East Palestine is only one mile from the Pennsylvania border. So uh, governor, our governor, Pennsylvania, uh, evacuated several square miles of Pennsylvania. Anybody who lived there had to leave uh, because it was, it was dangerous for life. In fact, Ohio, afterwards, they, they did a study to try to find out how much damage was done by this derailment. And they found that they could count. They found and could count 3,500 fish that had died, 38,000 minnows, and 5,500 other, other species of mammals. Uh, it was quite a derailment. That's the wreckage that happens in our lives when we allow ourselves to be derailed. Yes, maybe you're on, on track right now, but there's always danger of derailment. Jesus starts off his ministry really well with the baptism. Satan comes in, and he wants to derail Jesus. I have a friend who, years ago, made some really bad decisions. He gave in to some weaknesses of his, and he lost his family, blew up his career, and perhaps permanently lost his self-respect. He estimates that he... It, just because of the loss of his job and the kinds of jobs that are now open to him, he's lost a mil- literally a million dollars of income 
because of a stupid decision that he made that derailed him and he's never been able to get back on track. That's what happens to our lives when we don't stay on track. How do we stay on track? Maybe it would be a good idea to follow how does Jesus deal with Satan's attempts to derail him. Let's look at temptation number one. Now, Jesus starts off his, his time on the Mount of Temptations with 40 days of fasting. So after 40 days of not eating and drinking, or at least not eating for sure, uh, what, does, what does Jesus want most? I know. No, he wants a pierogi, right? Or, or a, you know, a permani sandwich or something. Well, okay, so he's in Israel. Maybe he doesn't want a permani sandwich. He, he, wants, he wants bread, okay? Maybe, maybe some grapes. That would be, be really nice. And so Satan shows up and says to him, uh, maybe I should mention uh, exactly what, what we're talking about with, with fasting. What, what, what's the whole deal with fasting? Fasting is about self-control, right? There's something that you want. You have to exercise your saying no button, your, your saying no muscle, right? That's not a natural thing for us. That's not easy to do, saying no to self. Our natural thing is more, more, me, me, me. And, and uh, that's part of what can, can derail us. Oscar Wilde said, uh, and I can really relate to this, he says, I can resist anything but temptation. <laughs> Sometimes we're our own worst enemy, right? The, if you took a psychology class in college, you probably studied the, the Stanford marshmallow test uh, in which a, a researcher uh, borrowed some students from a nearby nursery and one by one they would come in and they would sit at a desk in a room and the researcher was ready to ask him some questions. And then somebody came into the room and said, Dr. So-and-so, can, can I have you for a couple minutes? And the researcher said, said to the, the preschooler, uh, can you wait right here? I'll, just be, I'll be back in a, in a short while. In fact, here, here's a marshmallow for your trouble. Uh, and, oh, by the way, when I come back, if you haven't eaten this marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows. And he left and didn't come back for 15 minutes. We have actual videotape of the kids in the, in the room waiting for the, with this marshmallow on the table right in front of them. And the, typically the, the, the students, you could see them reach their hand out because they wanted that marshmallow, but I also want the two marshmallows. And so you could see this going on. Some, some of the students looked like this. I don't want to see the marshmallow. It's not really there. You could see them squirming. With their, they're wrestling with this temptation. Their temptation is... Uh, the difference between what I want most, two marshmallows, and what I want right now. There's that marshmallow, I can grab it. The fascinating thing about the study is that they tracked these students for decades afterwards to find out, the, is there, do we see any long-term effects from those who could exercise self-control uh, from those who could not say no? And they found significant differences in the lives of, of the, the kids who could say no and, and others who could not say no to themselves. They found that those who could say no uh, typically had far higher SAT scores. They were far healthier, happier, had higher incomes as adults, fewer run-ins with the law, and generally more satisfying lives than those of the, of the marshmallow grabbers. Those who could exercise self-control could stay on track, and those who couldn't say no to themselves, and they just grabbed the one marshmallow that was there, typically had a hard time saying to, no to themselves, and they were prone to being dis, uh, derailed in life, and they were. Jesus' answer to Satan was simply, 
when, you know, when Satan comes and says, hey, you know, you're the son of God. You could turn these stones on the mountain. You could turn them into bread, which is exactly, of course, what Jesus wanted to hear. But he knew if I'm, practi- if I'm here to devote myself to, to practicing saying no to self, uh, I can't do that. I can't, I can't give in to that. I have to say no to Satan. I have to say no to myself for me to say yes to God. Often that's the way it is, friends. We've got to be able to say at certain times no to ourselves so that we can say yes to God. Remember, Jesus' mission was ultimately to be able to say to God thy, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, thy will be done, not mine. Not my will, but thine be done saying no to self so that God's agenda may go forward. Jesus had to be able to prepare himself for that time. He had to be able to say ultimately, yes, for the, uh, for the joy that will be set before me, I will endure the cross. So there was a lot at stake. And Jesus ultimately said, hey, Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Strike one, Satan. Satan's not done. He's got another trick up his sleeve. Temptation number two. He proposes to Jesus, why don't you take yourself to the high point of the temple and throw yourself off? Because, and this is where he gets really clever, because he actually quotes scripture here. Can you imagine the devil quoting scripture? He says, he will command, meaning God, will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike one foot against a stone. In other words, what he's proposing is, hey, why spend three years working to to amass followers? There are thousands of people always milling around the temple. If you do some spectacular thing, they'll all follow you. You get thousands of followers like that. Yeah, you'll get the kind of followers that want to be entertained by some, what's what's his next miracle going to be? But that's not the kind of follower that he's looking for. In other words, Satan is proposing to derail Jesus by enticing Jesus to choose the easy way. Take the shortcut. Not, don't go the three-year method. You know, you can, you can have instant thousand followers just like that. Uh, some, you can, in other words, you can do, uh, you can become a people pleaser. I'm really concerned that there's, there's a temptation to the modern church to please people rather than proclaim sometimes hard truths. Uh, and, and we, we assess the, the well-being of a church by how, how many people we can entice or get to come. We use the false, you know, uh, a false means of, of accomplishing that. Uh, I used to, when I was at Family Guidance, several times we hosted pastors' conferences, and we would take lunch break, and the pastors, many of whom had never met be- each other before, uh, would, they would engage in conversations. And I, and I cautioned them, I said, and I don't want any of the conversations to have to do with how many people, how many members do you have in your church, okay? As if that's, that's what matters to God. And I, uh, I milled around during the lunchtime, and I invariably would hear pastors asking, and how many, how many people do you have in your church? They couldn't help themselves. The danger is that, that we become people pleasers. Very easy to derail a people pleaser. How many people do you find yourself wanting to please throughout the day? Sometimes, you know, we need to remind ourselves, Jesus was more intent on pleasing God than impressing people. Uh, one of the things that, that impresses me, I have, I have to shout out to the to the youth ministry of the church. I am, I am 
I, I've seen uh, the more exposure I have to our young people, the more I have, I have noticed and really been pleased to see that in that stage of life, I remember, do you remember when you were a teenager, you, you just, you wanted to please your family, you wanted to please your, your, your peers, you wanted to please your teachers, that sort of thing. I see a different thing in our young people here. I am really pleased to see that, uh, that our young people are really good at just plain doing the right thing and not worrying about their peers. They're not trying to uh, win, uh, uh, you know, uh, affirmation from other people. And I think that's an incredible sign of maturity. And I hope that we grown-ups uh, can take a, pay, take a page out of their book, you know. That's what we need to be able to do too. That's what Jesus decided to do also. So strike two, Satan. He's got one more shot. Temptation number three. Jesus decides to offer Jesus all the nations of the world if you will bow down and worship me. Now, remember, this is kind of what God wants him to. Satan can't offer anything that God isn't willing to give you, right? God is the ultimate arbiter. It's God's plan for all the nations to bow before the name of Jesus. Satan is offering him the same outcome with one difference. The same outcome, but if you do it my way, you don't have to go through the cross. I'll give you those nations. You don't have to suffer a hideous, agonizing death on the cross. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Satan is offering, in his temptation, the right goal by the wrong means. The right outcome, but the wrong way. In other words, cut corners. Manipulate to get the outcome that you want. Get followers. Avoid the cross. And Jesus' answer to him is, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's going to have humble dependence on his father to work things out. Jesus refuses to abandon his mission. His mission requires the cross, and he's willing to bear it. You will find yourself thrust into situations where you have to constantly decide, am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to take a shortcut here? Am I going to manipulate things so I get the outcome without having to do the hard stuff? I, was, I remember shortly after graduating from, from college, I was uh, interviewing with some, uh, some communications firm, and there was one firm here in Mount Lebanon, actually, uh, that, I, that they had narrowed down their list of candidates. They interviewed 27 people. They narrowed it down to three finalists, and I was one of the finalists. They called me in several times for interviews. I literally had met everybody in the company. And at some point, you run out of, like, professional questions to ask, and they started asking personal questions to get to know you, okay? And uh, the president of the company, I ended up back at, at the end of the day in his office, and he said, Bob, I can't think of a single reason why, why I wouldn't hire you. And I'm like, so here I am. I'm waiting for an offer, you know? And he says, so uh, uh, I, I guess as, he, as, as we talked, uh, I was not really wearing my faith on my sleeve, but I'm not hiding anything either. And he, he knew that I was, I was a follower of Jesus. And he says, uh, he seemed really uncomfortable about that. And I, in fact, I remember he kind of stiffened immediately when that came up in the conversation. Now, I, you know, I, I said, you know, I'm really not here to evangelize, uh, but I, uh, I, I really want to do a good job for you, and I think I can do that. I said, but I, you know, I, I can't promise you I would never talk to somebody. Uh, he, he said, at least I know you won't evangelize. And uh, I knew he said it like it was a statement, but it was really a question, and he was waiting for me to answer, you know. 
And I said, you know, I, I really, I, I want to do a good job for you, but I can't promise I would never talk to anybody from the company about Jesus. And he said, with finality, well, don't. And he hired the other two finalists and not me. And I'm like, Lord, you know, I'm trying to do all the right things. And I just had another door slammed in my face. Where, where, where are you? And I need, a, I need a job. I had that, I really felt keenly that temptation. I really need a job. <laughs> I could have just shut my mouth, but I, I couldn't do it and, and feel like I was acting with integrity. And so I said what I said, the door was closed. And I thought, Lord, are you giving me a raw deal here? I, I don't, I, there was no answer for that. I just walked away. Years later, I can look back and say, if I had gotten that job, and he had all but told me I pretty much had the job, if I had kept my mouth shut, he would have hired me. I probably would have done pretty well because I, I would have lined up really well with what that job was about. But I probably would have been pretty satisfied doing that. And the path that God really had for me, that he wanted for me, I never would have experienced the joys that I've had of decades of, on the path that God had for me. That door would have been closed because I, I chose a shortcut. I chose the easy way. And I, I, I would not have handled myself with integrity. I was looking for the outcome without uh, doing it God's way. So I, 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 looking back on it, I feel like, you know, I'm really glad that I didn't forget my, my overarching mission. It's, more, it's about more than just grabbing the job that I think I need right now. It's about honoring God and everything that I'm doing. And he has more than repaid me a thousand times over for that decision. I know that in retrospect. But at the time, you know, you think like, I could just keep my mouth shut here and just not say anything, give any kind of answer there. I'm really glad that in that instance anyway, I was faithful and God has really blessed me for it. Don't abandon your mission. You have a mission to glorify God with your life. Jesus had a mission to go to the cross. You have a mission too, to, be, to participate with him in redeeming a lost, fallen, broken, sinful world. And you have a role to play in that. You have an important mission. Mark Twain said, the two most important days of your life are the day that you were born and the day you find out why. Why were you born? God has a plan for you. He has a mission for you. Don't mess it up. Don't, don't go sideways. Don't let Satan get you off track. St. Catherine of Siena said, be who God meant you to be and you will set the world on fire. We need that kind of fire in our world. We need that kind of fire in our families. You need that kind of fire to burn inside you. You're a fireplace. You were made to hold that fire. Kindle that fire. Be true to your mission. Stay on track. Let's pray. Lord God, every day, we got to tell you, you already know, we encounter situations where we, we could find it very easy to get, to get derailed. We want to we keep chugging down that, that track. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the presence of mind to surrender self-gratification, to live for you, to be true to the mission that you've given us. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to say no to the thing we want right now so that we can have the thing that we, that we want most of all, to please you, to be part of your plan of redeeming a fallen, dark, broken, sinful planet. Lord, help us to stay on track by the power of your spirit and the blood of Jesus who redeemed us. Let's pray the, uh, the Lord's Prayer together as, 
as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now let's say the, the confession of faith in the, as in the Apostles' Creed. Please stand. Let's affirm our faith together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Carolyn. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check out our website at mlepc.org. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a podcast. Have a blessed day.